uh, for me to be here this morning, and uh, I'm very thankful to Pastor Kenny and uh, Sister Karen for uh, their gracious invitation, and uh, it's been a been a joy to be here with you already. Had a privilege of uh, being in Sunday school this morning, and uh, a lot of a lot of great folks in Brother Dave's class. There were uh, uh, you could tell a lot of people who were doing life together that loved one another. Uh, Tim Turner uh, made uh, repentance cupcakes, from what I understand, this morning, uh, chocolate cupcakes, and so uh, we were very thankful for that. Uh, you know, when when you're in vocational ministry, uh, the tendency is is that. The preacher is usually the one who's most popular, and then uh, his wife has a tendency to sort of be in the background. Uh, the Lord has decided to keep me humble by giving me a wife who's on television. And so uh, the way it is in the upper Ohio Valley, uh, Emily is not my wife. I'm her husband. And so that's the way it goes in the upper Ohio Valley. So the Lord has ways of keeping us humble, doesn't he? But uh, it's great to be here this morning. Thankful for uh, the privilege to uh, share the word here with a Good Shepherd. And uh, I do believe I have a word this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. You know, ever since the 1940s, the Ad Council has been the leader of public service announcements in the United States of America. And uh, they have literally uh, quarterbacked thousands of public service campaigns. But of all the campaigns that they have uh produced. Probably my favorite is a campaign that they did a few decades ago entitled Don't Almost Give. You know, there's one ad that shows a a man with crutches who's struggling to go up a flight of concrete stairs. And the narrator says this, the narrator says, this is a man who almost learned to walk at a rehab center that almost got built by people who almost gave money. And after a brief pause, the announcer continues and says, almost gave. How good is almost giving? About as good as almost walking. There's another ad that shows a homeless man who's curled up in a ball on a pile of rags. And the only thing that separates him from the frigid, windy evening is a ratty bed sheet. And the narrator says, this is Jack Thomas. Today, someone almost bought Jack something to eat. Someone almost brought him to a shelter, and someone else almost brought him a warm blanket. And then the narrator says, and Jack Thomas, well, he almost made it through the night. And they've got several of these campaigns, and all of them end with a very simple and poignant message that says, don't almost give, give, almost. You know, it's a pretty sad word in anybody's dictionary. It keeps company with words like if and nearly. It's a cousin to phrases like just about and should have. The word almost is a word that smacks of missed opportunities and lost chances. You know, there was an Olympian one time by the name of Tim McKee who was edged out of the gold medal in the 400-meter relay in the Olympics by two thousandths of a second. Tim McKee almost won a gold medal. A lot of people who know me know I'm from Kentucky, so I've got two favorite teams on any given Saturday, and that's the Kentucky Wildcats and anybody who plays against the Duke Blue Devils. Can I get a witness, Pastor Kenny? And so when the Duke Blue Devils were in the 2010 NCAA championship game, they were playing a Cinderella team by the name of the Butler Bulldogs. And so even though normally I'm a cat, that night I was a dog, and I was a proud dog. And so I was going for, you know, I was rooting for the upset. And uh, Butler, amazingly, had the ball 
And they were down two points with four seconds to go, and they had to go the length of the floor. And so they inbounded the ball to their small forward. He dribbled around a little bit, got just past the half-court line, and heaved up a shot. And all I was praying. The ball hit the backboard, then hit the front of the rim, and just barely rimmed out. And I hate to say this in the house of God, but that night, the Duke Blue Devils won the national championship. Oh, man. Butler almost pulled off one of the greatest upsets in tournament history. You know, everybody can relate to the concept of almost. When I was a a baseball player growing up, I almost hit many home runs. Uh, When I was in business, I almost closed deals. I almost made sales. Every one of us can understand the concept of almost because we've had many things that almost happened to us. But as they say, almost doesn't count except in horseshoes and hand grenades. That's right. And as disappointing as some things in life can be, I don't think there's anything more disappointing, not just to a preacher, but it ought to be disappointing to the people of God when there are people who almost trust the Lord. They almost give their lives over to Him, not just in salvation, but in service. And the Bible gives us innumerable instances of people who fit in this category. You know, Pharaoh almost listened to Moses on several occasions But his heart ended up hardened toward the Lord. Jonah almost experienced the joy of the greatest Old Testament revival before having a temper tantrum while relaxing in the shade. Uh, We read about Judas in the New Testament who spent three and a half years learning at the feet of the master. The master washed his feet just before he betrayed the master. He kissed the door of heaven and almost repented, but he tragically missed out. On eternal life. You know, this morning, I want us to examine what may be the most tragic passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament, which is the story of King Agrippa, who was almost persuaded. And so, if you found your place in Acts chapter 26, I want to invite you this morning to stand with me in reverence for the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative word. Acts chapter 26. Beginning in verse number 22, the Apostle Paul concludes his personal testimony with these words. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles, as Paul speaking. And then verse 24, now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost Persuade me to become a Christian. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Verse 29, and Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except these chains. This morning, I want us to look briefly at a passage of scripture as I preach a message entitled, Almost Persuaded. Let's pray together. Father, 
thank you for your word. I'm always grateful for the privilege and the weight of the preaching moment. Lord, you literally changed my life through the power of preaching. And so I pray this morning that hearts would be receptive, that eyes would be open, that ears would hear the truth of your word, and that Holy Spirit, through the power that you and you alone can bring, that you would open up hearts, make hearts receptive, and that you would change lives in this very place today. If there's someone who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they place faith in him unto salvation. And Lord, if there are any of your people who are professing Christians, but who are not fully persuaded, not fully committed, not absolutely sold out for the sake of the gospel, oh Lord, would you give us hearts to hear you today? Help us to uh, recognize and have the courage to look within and see the things that are undone that we need to hand over to you. Things that we may need to commit anew and afresh to you and you alone today. Lord, have your way in this service. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. The Apostle Paul has been put on trial for preaching the gospel. And as he stands in this great amphitheater in the city of Caesarea Maritima, he is standing in front of two of the most powerful men in the world at that time, King Agrippa and the noble Festus. And you have to realize the irony of this situation. The Apostle Paul has been put on trial for preaching the gospel. And as he stands in this great amphitheater in Caesarea Maritima, what is he doing in response to preaching the gospel? He's preaching the gospel. And so the very thing that got him locked up is the very thing he's doing here in Acts chapter 26. Now, Acts 26 is the fifth of Paul's defenses as you near the end of the book of Acts. In uh, Acts chapter 22, uh, Paul gave a defense on the steps of the temple court. In uh, Acts chapter 23, he gave a defense before the Jewish council. In Acts 24, he gave a defense before Felix. And in Acts 25, he gave a defense before Festus. And now we come to Acts 26, and Paul gives another defense for preaching the gospel. And he does it before King Agrippa, and Festus is still in the picture. And how does he give his defense? He shares his personal testimony. The power of a testimony. The first 21 verses of this chapter, he shares what his testimony is. He uh, tells about his life before Jesus. He tells about how he was converted on the road to Damascus. And then he tells uh, the folks in this place about how Jesus Christ changed his life. And so that's, that's the summary of any testimony. But as we come to Acts uh, chapter 26, verse 22, we see Paul wrapping up his personal testimony. And he says, therefore, having obtained help from God, that help was given to him from the power, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, to this day, I stand. And so Paul's saying, look, you can arrest me for preaching the gospel, but I'm still going to stand on the truth of God's word. And then he says, I'm witnessing both to small and great. And he, he tells us here about the transcendence of the gospel and about the inclusivity of the gospel, because the gospel is for all people. Amen. And then he says this, he links his message 
with the same message of the Old Testament and the, and the Old Testament prophets. He says, I'm not saying anything else. I mean, you want to arrest me for preaching the gospel? You want to say that this Christianity faith is a newfangled religion? Look, I'm not saying anything other than what the Old Testament prophets said and what Moses said from the very beginning. And then he shares three components of the gospel in verse 23. He shares the person of the gospel. He shares the power of the gospel. And he shares the purpose of the gospel. He says that Christ would suffer. That he would be the first to rise from the dead. Ain't no grave going to hold Jesus down. Right? And that he would proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And so Paul sums up his testimony at this point. And at this point in the story... We pause, and I want you to know from this point forward in the rest of the chapter, we see three responses to Paul's gospel message that he preached. Three responses to the gospel. Now, if you and I were to just brainstorm this morning and think about all the different responses that we could have to the gospel message, I'm sure that together we could come up with thousands, maybe tens of thousands of potential responses to the gospel message. The gospel makes some people uncomfortable. It makes other people happy. The gospel can bring peace. The gospel can bring discomfort. The gospel can make some people full of joy. The gospel can make some people angry. No matter how many different responses you and I could intellectually conceive to the gospel message, the bottom line is this. However people respond to the gospel message, it's going to put you... In one of two categories. And that's either lost or saved. No matter how many different responses there are to the gospel. There are only two ultimate eternal destinations. Heaven or hell. There is a narrow road to heaven. And there is a wide broad road to destruction. And so we move forward here in this story. I want us to take a look at these responses to the gospel. And ask ourselves... Which category you and I fit in. Now I know that if you were to just sort of categorize this sermon here at the beginning. You would say well this is certainly an evangelistic sermon. And there is a component to this message in which I want to offer salvation to anybody here who doesn't know Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior. But this is not just an evangelistic sermon. This is meant to be a consecrative sermon. And I'll tell you why. Because I believe... That's scattered all throughout churches, all across this great nation, really all across this world. There are people who profess the name of Jesus Christ, whose lives do not reflect the magnitude and intensity of the gospel truth that we profess. In other words, our practice does not mirror our profession. Now, I'll tell you this. Listen, you, 7.7 billion people on planet Earth. No fewer than 5 billion people on this planet are lost. And they need somebody to take the gospel to them. And you're telling me that the millions of Christians in America who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are just called to sit on their blessed assurance every Sunday and not take the gospel to the nations? I believe as Southern Baptists we can do a whole lot better than sending 3,700 missionaries to the international mission field. I believe all throughout churches all across this nation, God is calling people to the nations because we read in Matthew 24 that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. 
So let's look here in Acts 26 at the three responses to the gospel. And let's ask ourselves, which category do I fall in? First of all, we see here in verse 24. Absolutely reject the gospel message. Look at verse 24. It says, now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Now, (laughs) when you think about the people who ran around with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, these men were fishermen and tax collectors. Acts, the book of Acts, uh, I think chapter 4 tells us that these were ignorant and unlearned men. But the world stood up and took notice that they'd been with Jesus. So you think about the men who ran around with Jesus. They were common, ordinary, everyday guys. They were ignorant and unlearned men. But Paul was not. Paul was an intellect. Paul sat at the feet of the greatest philosophers of the day. Greatest counselors of the hour. Paul learned from the best. I've heard uh, preachers at conferences say that Paul had the contemporary equivalent of a triple Ph.D., So Paul was a very educated guy. And Festus is hearing Paul align the gospel message with the Old Testament prophets. And he just can't take it anymore. And so he interrupts Paul and he essentially says, Paul, you've gotten so smart you're stupid. You ever known anybody like that? You ever ran around with anybody who had a lot of book sense but not a lot of common sense? Well, that's the accusation here. And you know, you know, it's been said that whenever... Whenever somebody is squeezed or put in a difficult situation, that's when you really learn what is inside of a man's heart. Now, I can imagine that Paul was in a potentially embarrassing situation here. Because think about it. He's been arrested for preaching the gospel. He's brought out in this great amphitheater in Caesarea Maritima overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. He's shackled up. And he's in front of all these people he doesn't know. And then all of a sudden, one of the most powerful men in the world interrupts him and says, Paul, you've gotten so smart, you're stupid. And I can't prove this from the text. But as I read this and I try to place myself in this ancient scenario, I can faintly hear the ripples of laughter sort of coursing through the people in that audience. You know, there's a price to pay for being a Christian. And sometimes we will have to face ridicule. Sometimes we will have to face rejection. Paul here had to face the rejection and the incredulity of this great and powerful man. Now, just like I told you, I'm from Kentucky. And uh, I'm not the type of person who is who has arrived at a deep level of sanctification yet. And so, for me, just to tell on myself in front of all you good people... I have a tendency sometimes to still get in the flesh. Can anybody relate to that? And so I try to put myself in Paul's shoes here. And I I really honestly believe that if I was in this situation, I would be tempted to look Festus in the face and say, Oh, I've gotten so smart I'm stupid. Come down from your throne, big boy, and we'll see just how stupid I really am. You know, I would be tempted to knuckle up. I'd be tempted to get in the flesh, right? But notice how Paul responds with great gospel fruit and patience. He says, I'm not mad, most noble Festus. 
I mean, here's a guy who is trying to embarrass him. Here's a guy who's trying to oppose his message. And he doesn't insult him. He doesn't respond to an insult with an insult. He responds to an insult with great respect and dignity. I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. Now, at this point, at the end of verse 25, we don't know what's taking place. But on the basis of what happens in verse 26, I think we can make a reasonable inference. Paul changes his focus from Festus to Agrippa. You see, whenever you share the gospel with some people, there are going to be some people who are just not ready to receive it. There are going to be some people, today is not the day of salvation for them. Now, how do you handle that? Well, it's okay to sow the seed and walk away and come back a different day. You don't give up on people. I've been praying for my dad for almost 27 years. Someday he's going to be saved. I didn't walk away and just said, well, okay, just throw my hands up. But sometimes we just have to let the gospel germinate in people's hearts. And I believe that Paul realized today was not the day of salvation for Festus. And so when some people absolutely reject the gospel, you just walk away, trust the seed of the gospel, trust the truth of the gospel, and then go on to someone else. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. This could very well have been Paul's last day alive. He didn't know. He was on trial for preaching the gospel. He was willing to die for the sake of Jesus Christ. And his mentality was, if I'm going to go today I'm going to take one additional person with me isn't that a great gospel attitude Paul was sold out I'll tell you what I'll amen myself if you don't amen me I'm going to try to have a good time up here while I'm preaching so notice how Paul's attention shifts from Festus to King Agrippa he says at the beginning of verse 26 for the king Before whom I also speak freely. Knows these things. Knows what things? The things that he was talking about at the end of his testimony. The reality that Paul's message. While it might have been socially contradistinctive to the Jewish message. Paul was aligning himself with the message of the Jewish prophets. And he realizes that King Agrippa. Who, who had a large constituency of Jewish people under his rule, knew what their theological beliefs were. And King Agrippa knew that what Paul was preaching was the same message that the Old Testament prophets were preaching. The king knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. And then... He corners King Agrippa. He forces a decision. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And then he qualifies that question with the answer, I know that you do believe. Now, don't think that Paul was just flying by the seat of his pants in the middle of this exchange. There was great strategy, great intentionality behind what Paul was saying here. Because... Just like we just said, a large part of Agrippa's constituency were Jewish people. And so Paul was asking him a very pointed question 
that he could not wiggle out of. Do you believe the prophets? Now, I might be from Kentucky, but even I know that there's only two possible answers to that question, right? Do you believe the prophets? What are the two answers to that question? Yes or no, right? So think about this. Two possible answers to that question. If he would have said, yes, I believe the prophets, then it would have been game on. All right, you know, I'm going to lead you right here to faith in Jesus Christ. Today will be the day of your salvation. If you believe the prophets, let me show you Jesus and the prophetic messages. And then today is going to be the day of your salvation. But if he would have said, no, I don't believe the prophets. How do you think that the Jewish constituency under his authority would have taken to that? Oh, they would have been offended. There, I mean, that, the culture would have been ripe for a revolt. And so what Paul was doing was backing Agrippa into a corner to make a decision about the truth of the gospel message. Let me tell you something. Whenever you have somebody in your life who is lost... Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is back them into a corner because every person is going to have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. You're not going to be able to be in neutral territory. You have to either receive him or reject him, but you can't take a neutral attitude. And so Paul was forcing, prompting a decision here by King Agrippa. And as we come to verse 28, we see a second response to the gospel message. Now, Festus showed us that some people absolutely reject the gospel message. But Agrippa shows us that some people almost receive the gospel message. And notice what he says in verse 28. He says, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. I wonder if there's anybody like that here this morning. You've been hearing the gospel message preached for years. But you have never explicitly responded to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. There are many people who almost receive the gospel message. You know, I looked up that word almost. And it had a very chilling meaning. The word almost means middle ground or neutral. There are some people today who want to take a middle ground road to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. There are some people who will claim to be gospel preachers and will go on national news outlets and never talk about sin. They will compromise on the message of the gospel and they will couch language which ought to be about sin and they'll say things like well that's not God's best there are many people who try to take a middle ground road because some people are afraid of offending a certain group of people but when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ there is no man no woman no boy no girl on the planet today who can be in neutral territory every person must make a decision and every person will give an account to Jesus Christ when they stand before him but nobody can be in neutral territory 
But Agrippa was backed into a corner by the Apostle Paul and he tried to be a politician. He tried to say, well, I don't want to alienate the Jews, but I don't want to I don't want to alienate this group of people either. I don't want to offend anyone. And the reality is. Is that when you place faith in Jesus Christ, there's going to be somebody who doesn't like it. You've got to learn to just accept it and get over yourself and just say, look, if somebody's offended, somebody's offended. You know, I don't walk around like an angry fundamentalist, you know, trying to offend everybody I come in contact with. But my allegiance to Jesus Christ will inevitably cause somebody to be upset. I can't help that. (laughs) If they're upset by that, I'm just going to say, look, man, let's sit down and have a conversation. I want you to have what I have. And I don't think it's arrogant to say, you need what I've got. Because what I've got is not about me. It's about him. It's what he's done. So some people will almost receive the gospel message. Agrippa says, you almost persuade me. To become a Christian. You know, I thought about that phrase. To become a Christian. Because you can become a lot of things in this world. You can become a firefighter. Or a police officer. You can become a a spouse. If there's a new addition to your family, you can become a parent or a sibling. You could become a drug addict or prostitute. You could become a preacher or a deacon. I mean, the list goes on. We could literally conceive of millions of things that we could all become. But when it comes to eternity, there's only one thing that matters. And that's whether or not you and I become a Christian. And so I want to ask you today, have you become a Christian? I'm not asking you if you've prayed a prayer. I'm not asking you if you have intellectually ascended to certain biblical doctrines, although that is a component of Christianity. But what I'm asking you is, have you made Jesus Christ the Lord and decision maker of your life? Have you given him every single thing In your life, from your thoughts to your heart to your behaviors and everything that influences all of those things. Have you given him the entirety of your being? That's what it means to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is not as easy as we would like to think it is in American culture. I mean, it's as easy as faith. But what does it really take to have saving faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, Jesus gave us the demands of discipleship in Luke 9, 23. And they can be scary when you understand what he really meant. If any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, first of all, we've got to deny ourselves. And then we've got to be willing to pick up an instrument of torture every single day. And then follow him. That's what it means to become a Christian. Some people almost receive the gospel. I don't know what was going on in Agrippa's mind here. But what I do know 
is that he wasn't willing to pay the price of following Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior. He wanted to take a middle ground road. He didn't want to offend anyone. He tried to remain in neutral territory. But the Apostle Paul responded to that statement and said, I would to God, in verse 29, that not only you but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. You know, Paul tells us that there's a third category of people. He shows us that some people already represent the gospel. You want to know who in a crowd represents the gospel? It's going to be the person who might be in hot water. (laughs) Some people already represent the gospel. You know, there's a great irony in this situation here. Paul is in front of all these people and he's shackled up. And Agrippa tried to take a middle ground road. He tried to be in neutral territory. And Paul Paul says, no, 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 no. I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me today would become both almost and altogether such as I am. And then he looked down and he realized he was shackled up. And he realized the irony of the situation. He said, I wish everyone here was like me except for the chains. And you know what the paradox of that scenario was? The man in the shackles was the most liberated man in the place because he knew Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something. You can know Jesus Christ and be in prison and you can be liberated. You can know Jesus Christ and you can be bankrupt and you can be wealthy beyond your wildest dreams. You can know Jesus Christ and you can be broken, but you can be whole and absolutely complete in him. You can know Jesus Christ and you can know the peace he offers and you can be courageous in the fight for the sake of the gospel. You can know Jesus Christ and you can know The punishment that comes from obeying him. You can know Jesus Christ and you can be in the middle of persecution. And you can have joy unspeakable and full of glory. If you know him, all those things are available to you. Some people already represent the gospel. Which one of these categories do you fall in? When we talk about the condition of your heart, there's a few things that I would like to ask you personally. And I want to invite you to get those things settled today. First of all, I want to ask you if you truly know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Do you know him intimately? Do you have a relationship with him? You know, as the old hymn goes... Does he walk with you and talk with you along life's narrow way? Do you talk with him? Do you know him in an intimate way? Because if you don't, today I want to give you the chance to know eternal life. And eternal life is a relationship with him. But second of all, I want to ask you, are you here today and you profess the name of Jesus Christ, but you know deep within your heart That you have run from something, from a call that he has placed on your life. Have you refused to give him a certain part of your heart 
that he has continued to press on and ask for day after day, week after week, month after month, and year after year. You see, it's not just lost people who can be almost persuaded. It can be saved people who are almost persuaded and refuse to give everything to him. You know, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a tried and true Southern Baptist, that's for sure. I, uh, one of my deep, dark secrets is that I surrendered to ministry in a Pentecostal church, Brother Kenny. And so uh, I surrendered to ministry in a Pentecostal church, but I ended up becoming Southern Baptist as soon as I could. All right? It only took me uh, about two and a half years. And, and, I, and one of the things that convinced me to become Southern Baptist was doctrine. You know, I really believe that Southern Baptists were uh, just very bullseye biblical, as I like to say. And over the course of time, I became more convinced of that because I would listen on the radio and I would hear preachers like Adrian Rogers. Still my favorite preacher to this day. You know, I've got Adrian on my podcast, Brother Tim. I listen to Adrian on a regular basis. And uh, he, being dead, still speaks to me. And, um, and so I started to develop heroes of the faith. And I started to admire uh, great men in the Southern Baptist Convention who'd gone before us. And I uh, admired Adrian Rogers and many others. And so those, those men are my heroes. But, you know, I've got one hero that might surprise you. One of the greatest ministers that I've ever heard about. She is a Nazarene missionary from the early 20th century by the name of Louise Chapman. She went to the mission field and was willing to risk all in sub-Saharan Africa because she was fully sold out to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think God is calling many people today to follow in her footsteps. You know, after she passed away, a lot of her books and notes were archived and saved for posterity's sake. And one of the things that she left behind was her life mission statement. And when I first heard it, it changed me. I memorized it. And I want to share that with you today. Louise Chapman wrote, and she said, Only one out of every 50 people in this world know exactly who they are in Jesus Christ. One out of 50. That's 2%. And if you want to understand the 2% of the people in this world, you're going to be misunderstood by the other 98%. Well, she wrote, and she said, I've chosen to become part of the fellowship of the 2%. The die's been cast. I've stepped out of the comfort zone. The decision's been made. I am a Christian. I won't look back, let up, slow down, or back away. My past is forgotten. My present is focused and my future secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, cheap excuses, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, position, promotion, promises, or popularity. I don't have to be first. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be recognized. I don't have to be praised, regarded, or rewarded. I've died to the self-centered, ego-driven, limp-lip lifestyle. I live by faith, learn by submitting, labor by love, lead by example, 
and lift by prayer. My dream is developed, my decision definite, my desire determined, my discipline dedicated, and my devotion distinct. My face is set, my pace is fast, my road is narrow, and my way is tough. But my companions are strong, my counselor is reliable, my purpose is pure, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, delayed, or denied. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder in the pull of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, shut up, or let up until I've stirred up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and stood up for the Lord Jesus Christ. I must fight when others faint. Go when others won't. Give till I drop. Teach till all know. And work until the task is finished. And she concluded by saying, When I lie exhausted on the mission field of God's children, my heavenly Father won't have any trouble recognizing me as one of his own. I'm talking about a full persuasion in who Jesus Christ is. There are five billion people on this planet that need to hear who you profess to belong to. And I think you've got a simple decision today. You can get this settled and have a full persuasion in Jesus Christ as a son of God. Or... Settle for the position of King Agrippa. Almost persuaded. Let's stand together this morning.